0: To tell Dundalee's story, I had to begin with a reconstruction of the tribal nations of southeast Queensland, so that people could, could have an understanding of the world that Dundalee grew up in, um, a world where there was a system of governance, there was a system of law, where everybody understood their place, everyone understood their obligations to one another through the kinship system. The book, of course, ends sadly with Dundalee's execution. He was publicly executed in Queen Street on the 5th of January 1855 and he was one of the last people in New South Wales to be publicly executed. Within a few weeks, the Legislative Council banned what they called public hangings and thereafter they did what they called private hangings. In other words, from then on, hangings were carried out inside the jail walls. And he was also, the execution was also carried out by one of the last executions carried out by the official hangman of New South Wales, a man called Alexander Green. Within a few weeks of him hanging Dundley he was committed to the Tarbon Creek Lunatic Asylum. He was also already an alcoholic, um, and he'd been official of hangman for New South Wales for t- more than 20 years, and he had publicly hanged more than 400 people. It's part of our colonial history where it's, historians have a difficult exercise in encompassing the gentility of the times with the actual brutality of the colonial system and the class system and how it impacted not just on the frontier but on on the non-Indigenous as well as the Indigenous community. And yet there were so many individuals that I kept identifying with as I researched this history Another interesting part of the editing process was the editor telling me, you have to cut 33%, stop getting sidetracked and telling these other stories, focus on Dundeley." The only reason I was able to capture Dundalee's story was because there were so many legal records about him. And the reason why there were so many legal records is because he lived at an interesting time on the frontier. The Australian frontier was extraordinarily long. I remember hearing Geoffrey Bolton years ago give a lecture when he said actually it was pretty short because, you know, the North Americans took so long to uh, work their way across that continent, whereas, of course, we had reached northern Australia. Certainly by the 1920s, there was the occupation of Central Australia. But it does mean that the killing times were reigned for 140 years. The killing times, which is the way the Aboriginal people of the Gulf country talk about the is that's the terms they use. Dundalee lived, he was born before the penal station was established at Moreton Bay. I think he was born around 1820, so he grew up in a time, he was within within with his own people on his own country before whites had arrived. Of course in 1833, 1832 and 33 was such an interesting time in British politics. When they passed the Reform Act, when they began to reform the rotten boroughs, when they banned slavery, when they instituted an inquiry into the convict system. It was such a time of idealism as the evangelical movement had significant influence in the parliament and then took control of the colonial office. And of course Henry Reynolds has told this story already in Law of the Land. What I was interested in was the impact that decisions made in the 1830s had on New South Wales because as a result of that evangelical control of the colonial office, A man called John Plunkett was appointed Attorney General of New South Wales and I think he's one of the most underestimated figures in our colonial past. He was an Irishman, as was the judge who presided at Dundalee's trial, Roger Terry. They had both had to campaign as young men for Catholic emancipation and it was only because of the Catholic emancipation that they were able to take an oath of office and be appointed to the civil service. And that was how they were sent to a place like New South Wales, where they both ended up having very influential positions in Sydney. And, of course, the other important decision that was made in this period was the decision to appoint Sir George Gipps as governor. And it's only because Plunkett, by this stage, is Attorney General and Gipps is appointed and lands here in 1837 that the Mile Creek Trials are prosecuted. Plunkett was the first brave man to advise the governor and Gipps was the first brave governor to say, yes, go ahead try them and of course it meant that both Gipps and Plunkett became the most hated men in New South Wales amongst the colonial elite. They were feared. It's a really important time because essentially the colonial office had advised, Bathurst had advised Governor Darling and this was in Macquarie's time. No more martial law. We are saying that we have taken control of New South Wales legitimately that we are not taking it by conquest. So you cannot be at war with Aboriginal people. We don't recognise any other sovereign people there to be at war with. Therefore, there cannot be any more use of the military, except in emergencies. And so you cannot declare martial law. And Gibbs and Plunkett both attempted, in their own ways, to enforce that. And that was why Mile Creek was so important, as they sent a message, no more killings. And I've sat there in those archives. I've seen the circulars, circulars sent out to every bench of country magistrates. You are not allowed to shoot at Aboriginal people. There must be an inquest if an Aboriginal person dies unexpectedly. And every time there'd be more rumours reaching Sydney about illegal activities and Gibbs or the lands commissioner, again, send out the circular, remind them there must be inquiries. And so it's important to note that Brisbane was settled only, you know, the decision to open up Brisbane, to close the penal station, open it up to free settlement, occurs within three years of the Mile Creek Trials. And I've seen the letters amongst the pastoralists. They are worried that word will get back to Sydney about any collisions, as they called them, with Aboriginal people. And they actually have meetings and make sure there's a barrister present because they know that if they can't convince Commandant Gorman before he left that uh, what they did was legitimate, They, they say quite openly that they have their horses mounted ready to flee in case that there might be any arrest warrants. So it's an interesting time and it just meant that there are letters to Sydney when there's evidence of killings being carried out around Brisbane. And there is this attempt on that small legal office in Sydney that had responsibility for an incredible district to actually arrest and prosecute individuals. But of course, you're looking at the aftermath of a convict settlement and, you know, they only ceased transportation in 1840 and even then they try to revive it for Moreton Bay. So more convicts arrived 1849, 1850, didn't dare land them in Sydney because there'd be riots, so they send them north. So you've got a whole working class, a labour force, that is very ambivalent about the law. You've got a pastoral class that are just angry at Gipps for not just for the Mile Creek trials, but because he was imposing pastoral acts which did recognise the rights of Aboriginal people to continue over the land, but also as part of his pastoral legislation he set up the border police that was to police both sides. They were to police whites if they committed offences against Aborigines and in theory they were to police Aboriginal people if they attacked whites. Although, as the people at the Ten Embassy reminded me this afternoon, I should be saying when Aboriginal people defended their country, not when Aboriginal people attacked. And it's an important point to, to remember that I keep using the language of the colonial documents. The dilemma then for John Plunkett is that when he does try to enforce the law in Brisbane, he, he repeatedly had hostile editorials from the Moreton Bay Courier. When he does try to prosecute Aboriginal people and fails because of the requirements, the processes of law that say, you know, you have to prove individual guilt, you have to have sworn witnesses, Aboriginal witnesses are no good because they can't test swear on the Bible. So he's got all these dilemmas and yet he's still trying to say to settlers, the law can manage this frontier, you are not to go to war. Well, it just means that the Moreton Bay Press, every time a young Aboriginal man is, often they're found guilty by the jury, but Decisions in Sydney say, look, you know, there just isn't enough evidence. This person, their sentence should be, they should be reprieved if they've been sentenced to death or if they've been sentenced to some ridiculous hard labour, it should be mitigated. And all of that means that the Moreton Bay Courier is saying, this is a joke. Aboriginal people are savages, they shouldn't be protected by British law and we should have the right to go to war against them. The law is an ass. So this is the political dynamic that the Supreme Court, when it has to come up to Brisbane, as it does twice a year, to hear cases, it's trying still to spread the legitimacy of British law on a white settler society that is defying it, as well as somehow to miraculously convince Aboriginal people as well that there is only one legal system. You know, I read with horror the accounts of of Dundalee's trial and I, I just kept pursuing the archives, thinking somebody must have stood up for Dundalee. Because, you know, I'd looked at other trials where other young Aboriginal men tried, found guilty, sentenced to death, but then mitigated some way. And I thought, surely somebody would have stood up for Dundalee because he was such a leading figure, both within the Indigenous community and within the township of Brisbane. He had been, there'd been an arrest, arrest warrant out for him since 1843. As long as he stayed on his own country, the police had no hope of arresting him. And he is only finally arrested because he comes into the township in 1854. But it's a sign of how weak authority is that without with town police who are not mounted, authority and British sovereignty doesn't really extend beyond the townships. Anywhere where there aren't pastoral stations, it's still Aboriginal country. And I give a few examples in the last chapter of the book to show that even as Brisbane was being made a separate British colony in its own right. In 1859, Aboriginal people were still able to take out white lives around Moreton Bay and the you know uproar in the, in the press. We don't even control the shipping lanes and they certainly didn't control the outer suburbs of Brisbane even while Brisbane was being made a separate colony. Of course, the other part of the story that is important to, to note is these interesting years in which you have John Plunkett as Attorney General end with self-government. When I was asked what am I going to talk about this night, I talked about phases of the frontier wars and I actually see this period from Governor Gipps in 1837 due to 1856 and the granting of self-government for New South Wales as a distinct period because after 1856 there is no one watching what is happening and this was an extraordinary decision when Earl Grey handed over full power to New South Wales and to the settlers because it had been colonial office policy for 60 years to never surrender indigenous policy or native policy, as they called it, to the settlers. That the permanent undersecretary for many years, James Stephen, had put this in writing, that there is a conflict of interest. Wherever you look throughout the British Empire, there's a conflict of interest between settlers and the native peoples who live in those colonies, and you cannot allow the local legislature to have control. And even the man who succeeded uh, Sir James Stephen, had give, he'd been a professor at Oxford, he'd given lectures in the 1830s uh, about this important policy, that there is a conflict of interest, the colonies cannot have control of indigenous policy. But by 1850, Sir James Stephen has retired, uh, Merivale becomes a permanent under-secretary, and Earl Grey signs off the bill giving full self-government to New South Wales in 1856. So it's after 1856 that keeping an eye on what settlers are up to around southern Queensland, or well not just southern Queensland, by 1856, they're, they're at Gladstone and Rockhampton and, and inland. I've seen the letters. <laughs> after self-government, there's reports of settlers shooting at Aboriginal people. Commissioner of Crown... La- in fact, it's an horrific report from the Native Police, actually, and I was so disappointed because it was Sir Charles Cowper who was, had responsibility for responding. I think he was about second premier, but he was a son of a clergyman, so I kind of thought all those church evangelical networks meant that he would have sort of shared a plunket view about Aboriginal rights, but he was much too good a politician to do that. It's quite chilling to read his his notes that he was given a report from a native police officer that talked about the patrols he had run and how he had fired at groups of Aboriginal people, including some women. And I think Cowper must have read this report first thing in the morning because he's sitting there at his desk saying, I understand that you have a right to retributive justice, but I do not want to have to read accounts of Aboriginal women being shot in the back as they run away. You will in future write your reports differently. It goes on for a couple of pages, you know, so you know he's agitated. But there was again an instruction to the benches of magistrate. The Commissioner of crown lands was again told to send out. Actually, that was Governor Denison, not Cowper, who says, you know, I think we bet to send out and send that circular again and remind people. Only this time, it's self-government. A couple of the country benches right back. So I think it was Armadale and one of the other benches writes back saying, oh really? You mean to say we're to treat Aboriginal people differently? We're allowed to do what is required to arrest outlaws and bush rangers if they escape arrest. Are you saying we're not allowed to fire at Aboriginal people who are escaping arrest? The rhetoric is turned back on, on those who were standing up for this idea that law could be used to, to settle colonies. This idea that the evangelicals had had in the 1830s when they'd actually believed that you could have a humane empire, that somehow you could take other people's country from them without killing them. You know, I thought that this was an important theme because it was interesting for me as a student sitting there reading through the legal papers because, of course, someone like Plunkett and someone like Gipps, they seem to be the only people standing up for Aboriginal lives and saying, stop the killing. And yet, of course, it wasn't an answer. It was simply using British law to deny Aboriginal law. So it was still pursuing the injustice because there was still this inevitable conflict dialectic between building an empire and recognising Aboriginal sovereignty. It's very appropriate to be considering this, I guess, this weekend when there is a national memorial for those who have fought and died in Australian wars because this is an sample or an episode in our past where war was denied and it was denied for the best reasons but it was, still, it was still wrong and it was still unjustifiable and how quickly with self-government they didn't quite go back to the language of warfare. It was interesting that in Queensland they still called it a native police force but the reality was it was simply a police force caging its language and writing its reports in a way that wouldn't affront moral public opinion in the townships. So 1856 is a really sad moment, I think, in our history. And I, I absolutely love, if anybody's had time to read Peter Cochrane's book, Colonial Ambition, it won the Prime Minister's Prize for History a few years ago. And it is a wonderful book, but it was such a shame that Peter didn't look at frontier and Aboriginal policy because he told a rousing story about how we achieved self-government. But for me, as a Queensland historian, looking at this past, it, it was just heartbreaking to, to put... Put settlers, we can no longer blame the British. You know, so much violence happens post 1856 that it was settlers, white Australian settlers, who contributed to this tragic history, not just British forces in that earlier period. Um, and of course, it does continue. The Native police were never formally disbanded when they passed the Aboriginal Protection Act in 1897. Uh, Horace Tozer, the minister responsible, promised the Parliament that he was now going to, you know, turn a page on that sad black history, and the violence was now going to stop. But somehow, the Parliament never got around to actually officially disbanding the force. It's just that World War One broke out, and they stopped recruiting, uh, and so finally, Queensland's Native Police Force just subsided um, and was no longer used. I've gone beyond Dunderley's story, but I wanted to do that because I, I didn't want to end on Dunderley's hanging. His life and, and the way I approached the book was to show that it wasn't just Dunderley who was hanged. This was an attempt at juricide, that it was an attempt to never look at the legality and the legal system and the, the laws by which Dunderley lived. And, and that is the important message, really, from his life, uh, if you ever get time to, to look at the book, I look at a number of the incidents Stundley was accused of involvement and I think it's very clear that he always acted according to Aboriginal protocol. He absolutely had Aboriginal law on his side. If anything, he was incredibly contained in his response in contrast to the disproportionate response that settlers doled out to Aboriginal people and the hysteria of their responses to the incidents he was involved in. I mentioned the border police. When the pastoralists won the fight against the pastoral regulations that Gipps had introduced, they also succeeded in having the border police abolished because it was funded through the license fees and the fees they paid per head per sheep and cattle. So they not only won on their pastoral legislation, they won on having the border police abolished and they succeeded in having Governor Gipps recalled. It was a great victory. So then Fitzroy was appointed, and for a year there was no authority in the pastoral districts. There were town police and magistrates in the townships but pastoralists who had campaigned against the border police are suddenly outraged saying you mean there's no protection for us in the pastoral districts? Fitzroy has and of course um, also part of the debates had been attacking. Gips had no means of raising revenue other than through the pastoral licences. So Fitzroy is landed. He's a more conservative governor. He knows the politics. He's been told to you know, calm the pastoral interest. So for a year, there's no authority in the bush. And then Fitzroy comes up with this brilliant idea that there had been Native police operating in Victoria under the protectorate system, and that maybe they could use Native police for the rural districts because, of course, they were incredibly cheap. They had to pay for white officers. They had to pay for horses. They had to pay for arms. And they did ha- pay the native troopers a wage, but it was a pittance. It was nothing like... W- a town constable was already poorly paid, and they received like a tenth of what a town police officer would be paid. And the first man who was recruited as commandant, who was a friend of Pastulus, he recruited miles from Queensland. He recruited down <coughs> the, the southwestern parts of New South Wales, around the Darling-Murray country down there, So these Aboriginal people were brought up north to Queensland, away from their own country. They're strangers in the tribal lands of southern Queensland. They've already been dispossessed on their own country. There's already been contact there. But it is important to note that Walker, it would be great for somebody to sit down and write his biography because he understood the debates that had been going on about law and policing and he would write angry letters to the government and to his political friends in Sydney saying the pastoralists want me to go to war. He was getting all these complaints, every pastoralist. oh, He, they, he operated from northern New South Wales into Queensland. But when he first formed, there was Clarence River, McIntyre River, Darling Downs. And they were the main pastoral districts. And then as settlement spread, he was instructed to recruit for Wide Bay. And so he had white officers in charge of detachments of about eight troopers. He always said in his reports to government that he followed law. He only... he always waited to have... He needed an arrest warrant before he would act. I think we have to read his reports with a grain of salt because there are other accounts by settlers saying, oh, they were still horrific in their activities around the McIntyre. But I do know that he did arrest men, uh, Aboriginal men and Chinese on the stations and, you know, and brought them into Brisbane for trial. Because the town police couldn't do it, he was expected to make all the arrests that followed an attack on Gregor Station. That was the most infamous attack that Dundee was involved in and essentially the police magistrate for Brisbane had just more or less, you know, issued arrest warrants for every Aboriginal man living on the stations north of Brisbane. At least that was, that was Walker's complaint. He said, this is ridiculous. I could round up every Aboriginal person on every station north of Brisbane. There should be an amnesty for every Aboriginal person involved in that station attack. And he was the one who alerted me it wasn't just a meaningless attack on a station, that Aboriginal people on several stations converged on uh, Andrew Gregor Station. That's why I think Walker's quite an interesting man. He always had really good rapport with his native troopers. He was eventually, he also became an alcoholic, gives an insight into what it was like doing this kind of work. And he was actually in Brisbane when Dundalee was hanged because there was an official inquiry into his conduct and he was removed in January 1855 and Dundalee was hanged on the 5th. Several of his troopers remained loyal to Walker It's a complex relationship, and it's not unlike Indigenous people being raised in British forces in other parts of the empire. But, of course, Jonathan Richards is the historian who's looked at the whole force post-1859, only looked at it pre-1859. And he shows later, once Queensland is a separate colony and they can't easily recruit from interstate, that you actually have Aboriginal people being coerced by the courts. You either go to jail or you're forced into the native police force. And there's fascinating stories about people mutinying and siding with local Aboriginal people. It's, 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 Jonathan started to tell the story, but there's lots more there. He, he was unjust under British law. There was ne- no one could ever testify that Dundalee had murdered anyone. But there were many people who could testify that Dundalee was present when attacks were carried out. And, so, and there were Aboriginal people. You know, Aboriginal people never saw these attacks as something to not talk about or something to be ashamed of. The, the local police trying to get evidence about, you know, who can they issue an arrest warrant for, what action can they take, they would go to what they called friendly Aboriginal people on nearby stations and the headmen would say, oh, yeah, this person and that person was involved and, yeah, Dundalee was there, Dundalee didn't. Dundalee stayed in the bush. And I'm looking at these reports in broken English saying, what does Dundalee stayed in the bush mean and why did he say it? And, you know, he knew what he meant. But, you know, 150 years later, I'm struggling, what did this... Aboriginal headman being. And it was clearer when there was an attack on a mission station. They had set up to the north of Brisbane. And it's very clear that Dunderly calls a meeting. That they, they build huts. They have begun planting. So they've been there quite a few weeks. And then Dunderly calls a meeting. Large numbers of Aboriginal men and a few Aboriginal men have been helping the missionaries. Then Dunderly calls a meeting. Large numbers gather at the mission station the missionaries get worried. Two of them go back to their main headquarters in Bris- near Brisbane um, and another one stays. And what happens is they attack that remaining missionary and uh, he's speared and but survives and he then takes off in the night trying to get across country where there's no roads through bush back to Nundah, one of the suburbs of Brisbane. The missionary children and the missionary folklore developed that, oh, you know, they were going to kill... John Houseman, the missionary, and then eat him. In fact, J.D. Lang and one of his, the Reverend J.D. Lang, who's such an interesting figure in colonial politics, in one of his stories, he says, oh, yes, they were intending to eat him. There's absolutely no evidence for it because he was wounded. He had a broken arm. He was speared. If they had wanted to kill him, they could have finished him off. I think it was very clear that the Aboriginal men come in, they take all the stores out of the hut, they trample the crops, they burn the huts. I think it was a message saying, you are not going to set up on our country. And Dundley, why the timing? He needed to do it according to Aboriginal law, L-A-W. He needed to get consent, and that's why there had to be a meeting first. The missionary reports back and, and swears on oath at the trial that he could hear Dundalee, uh directing the men outside, that he didn't see Dundley do anything. There was another man he ascribed the main activity to, but he says it was Dundalee directing everybody. And that was a bit like, you know, what this headman seemed to be saying about the events on Gregor's station. And there's other lesser incidents where Dundalee's present and seems to be saying, our law, our country, our law. And he does that on Bribey Island, which is where he goes to live on a number of incidents. The main correspondent from Brisbane was a man who did, it for the, who did the reports for the Sydney Morning Herald was a man called Thomas Dowse. Another, but there was such a rich colonial press in this period. Another one of the key Brisbane figures is a man called William Duncan. Another Catholic who, though he was Scot, but he had been the editor of a paper called the Sydney Chronicle and it had supported Gipps. It had protested against the pastoralists' uh, control of the colony and their avarice in terms of their opposition to the pastoral regulations. As a result, Charles Wentworth had pr- tried to bribe William Duncan. Uh, he knew that the Sydney Chronicle was, was struggling as a, as a newspaper. Duncan sticks to, sticks to his ground and refuses to take the bribe. His newspaper fails. Gipps says, you know, this poor man, because of politics, at which I'm at the centre of, this man's failed, and he appoints Duncan at, to a lowly sub-collector of customs at Moreton Bay but it meant there was one official <laughs> at Brisbane prepared to support Gipps. They, they lost out in the pastoral regulations, but he's still very critical of the pastoralist behavior up there, and he's an experienced newspaper man, so he knows to write letters to other newspapers in Sydney, and he has other support in other smaller newspapers in Sydney. So eventually, the Sydney Morning Herald does have to report that there's objections. And it, But all of that is the background to why Governor Fitzroy has to call an inquiry in Brisbane that sat from December 1846 through to February 1847 that also helped uncover some of the illegal activities that were going on up here, up in Brisbane. One of the um, challenges in telling the story was to cover the complexity of Aboriginal politics because there were several tribal nations around Brisbane that were affected and they didn't all agree and they didn't all follow Dundley. Similarly, not everyone in the non-Indigenous community that are part of the colonial settlement are in agreement either. So it was really fascinating reading through many of the pastoralists' collections of letters and I'm so grateful to the families, the McConnell family in particular, because David McConnell was a settler in the Brisbane Valley who, if you know southern Queensland, the townships of Esk and Togulawah, they were both part of his very extensive pastoral lease and he was able to manage that estate because he had two younger brothers with him. You know, the McConnells go down as a great God-fearing community. They actually employ one of Queensland's best architects in 1900 to build a a chapel on their pastoral station. Uh, His wife wrote a memoir, his daughter wrote a memoir, his daughter-in-law wrote a memoir. So we've got this wonderful catalogue of several generations and they all talk about what a good God-fearing man David McConnell was and yet I've got the exchanges of letters and it, it, it's, it's such an insight into gentle society because letters home to mother are always about who's engaged to whom and what's going on at home. Letters amongst the brothers are really frank about the level of violence that, that this is business talk. The rough business talk and the attacks on Aboriginal men are only shared in the letters here amongst the brothers who are in New South Wales and it's interesting because Fred doesn't like the way David talks and they actually have an exchange in one of their letters saying David says explicitly I intend to shoot any Aboriginal person I come across outside the settled districts and Fred puts a notation saying I disagree I don't think all Aboriginal people are our enemies I do only think we should shoot some of them who are our enemies. <laughs> one of the most important events was the poisoning at Kilcoy Station, which I haven't had time to talk about, but between 30 and 60 Aboriginal people are poisoned in February 1842, and that also changes the whole dynamic between the tribal nations and officials in Brisbane and Ipswich. I know, courtesy of the McConnell letters, just by piecing uh, events together, that an Aboriginal warrior called Commandant gets the two shepherds whom Aboriginal people blamed for the poisoning. They kill him within days of the poisoning. Sadly, um, and he would have been a significant figure, uh, and if he had lived, I think he probably would have surpassed Dunderley because uh, the McConnells give a description of Commandant, this young Aboriginal warrior who was more than six foot three tall, and they lure him and two older Aboriginal men and a small boy onto their station, enclose them in one of the cottages and then just uh, launch an attack. Fortunately, um, one of the older men was bayoneted, but he got away. The little boy, they say, got out through the chimney, and was not touched, but they killed Commandant and they, they talk about it explicitly in the letter. It was just heartbreaking stuff. Because I talked about the differences amongst the pastoralists and the Archer brothers, completely different set of letters. The Archer brothers, the only the, another part of the reason why we've got part of Dundeley's story is because they settled on Dundeley's country and their relationship with the headman, around what is now the township of Woodford, if you ever go up to the Woodford Folk Festival. That headman got on with the archers, and the archers, they were explicit too in their letters home. They did not agree that whites had the right to usurp the land and that they allowed Aboriginal people to continue on their station. And even after the Archer brothers sold the station to John McConnell, David's younger brother, John McConnell continued to allow Aboriginal people on the station. And it becomes one of the havens for the Aboriginal community in the 1860s, that they survive on that country on, until the 1890s and the Aboriginal Protection Act, when they're forcibly removed. So, yeah, there is a mixed story. Uh, Maurice French did write a whole volume, Con- Conflict on the Condamine. He, he did set out to try and recapture some of that. I suspect if he... He published that back in the 90s, and I suspect if he sat down today, he'd have even more information. There is important work going on. There's... Um, Three scholars have done a bit of work about the horrible events that take place on the McIntyre. But yeah, I think there's still a lot more to be told about the Darling Downs. Fascinating. I've done a little bit of reading of the Leslie papers. I, I've, you know, I've certainly read George Leslie and Arthur Macarthur. His brother-in-law certainly took part in a raid. Uh, his wife Emmeline records how he made sure he. Had, an, had a warrant before he headed out there that, you know, it's 1848, they're still aware of Mile Creek, they're still trying to do it all according to law, but there's no other witnesses other than... And interestingly, they always went out without their servants. They, didn't, they knew the servants might talk. So I've looked at quite a few trials where it's amazing how much the white working men would stick together because there are often rewards out for these Aboriginal men. But other times, you know, there's... This is a convict and ex-convict workforce. They're more than happy to lean on one another to make sure they don't testify against one another. But the Leslies, at least, were careful to make sure they didn't have servants witness what they did. They did it themselves as gentlemen. The McConnells didn't seem to care as much. They would sometimes go out with their foremen and other other workmen as long as they were mounted. It wasn't much use if you weren't mounted. And so in 1844, there was a really effective resistance by the Yagara through Brisbane Valley simply because it was a wet season, so European horses couldn't go into swampy ground. The Europeans wouldn't go into forested country. Anywhere that was forested was a haven for Aboriginal people on their own country. It was the grasslands that the Europeans effectively occupied. The frontier violence, Aboriginal people often had the upper hand, and I I think the other important part I was trying to tell about Nunderley's story was reminding historians about Aboriginal agency. If you just look, you will see whites are not totally in control, they're responding to Aboriginal events all the time. Yeah. I was really keen to try and reconstruct the, the Aboriginal leadership because I was trying to reconstruct the tribal nations at early contact and there were some reports so we know who the significant leaders were at the time of white settlement. And some of the important men prior to settlement live into the 1840s and, and some of them are commemorated in place names around Queensland. So. The important elder on the Sunshine Coast, or one of them, was Yumundi, that the township of Yumundi is named after. The one on the and um, uh, the Sunshine Coast hinterland and the Blackall Range there was Ubi Ubi, whom Obi, Obi Creek is named after. The really important man in the Brisbane Valley was a man called Moppy. Belfour is another pastoralist who settles in August 1841 and he's almost immediately, you know, no sooner has he moved his flocks and herds onto. Uh, his land, which is around Collington, which is still a township on the Brisbane Valley Highway. As soon as he moves his, his flocks and herds on, he comes under mass attack. And he's the one who, who first, as far as I'm aware, he's the first to name Moppy. And he says, this man can draw on 1,200 warriors. Now, one of my colleagues says, look, I just misread the letter. <laughs> I, I, other historians have read it too and said 1,200. He thinks that maybe it was only 120. He's still saying, how could... But I actually think if Moppy and Ubi Ubi got together, maybe they could have amassed 1,200. Certainly, whatever, however many it was, Balfour was terrified and all his men debunked to McConnell station. They wouldn't stay. Moppy is really important because I haven't been able to find out when precisely but he dies in a conflict with Europeans and the story is that he was still urging his men on as he hung on to a sapling saying you know keep fighting. He had three sons and they said they would avenge their father and Moppy goes into conflict with Europeans because Canning Pierce who said although I heard a different name for the man responsible for the station and this act the other day but my understanding was it was It was Canning Pierce. Maybe I've only remembered his name because he was related to Prime Minister Canning, but that's another story. But when he set up Halidon Station, they just went to the local Aboriginal village and took all... They had beautiful bark in southern Queensland. The Dala people around Kilkoy had it too. I can't remember which tree species it was. It was fantastic building material. As long as you laid it flat, it would retain its impermeability and so yeah there was a village near Halidan they just went in took all the bark for their own to construct their own huts on the station and that was the trigger for the Yagra and that was why Moppy was leading um, attacks now when Moppy's killed his three sons said this is war and they send messages to the pastoralists saying you need to know we are at war we will avenge our father and we are going to attack all your horses and drays so they don't make it to the Darling Downs Uh, And so there's one very famous incident at One Tree Hill where they do, they successfully stop and rob all the drays, they kill several horses, they kill some of the oxen and stop the drays going up the the Great Divide. So after that, a detachment of the 99th Regiment is stationed there at the foot of the range to stop any further Aboriginal attacks. So then Moppy's sons move to Rosewood and instead they block the road there whenever they can. When Multagora is killed, Multagora was... Moppy's son, and that seems to have been part of Dunderley's motivations. Multagora was one of the young men who was, um, but his authority was only over his people. Uh, and so he has a different position to the people in Brisbane under Daki Yucca. Um, there's another significant leader called Mulrobin for the southern part, what today we'd call South Brisbane and the southern suburbs of Brisbane. Uh, and then Dundeley's people are on Bribey Island and also so they all have different positions vis-a-vis their relationships with the whites, as do the Stradbroke Islanders, because the Stradbroke Islanders and the people in the city of Brisbane had come up against military force when the penal establishment was founded. And the tragedy for Dundeley's story is that these political differences do affect Dunderlee, that there are, there are plenty of people in the Aboriginal community saying, let's not enforce the Aboriginal law. Let's just use the Europeans whenever we can. They get caught up then and try to use white politics and, and help contribute to Dundalee's arrest. And so I was curious, you know, who was left amongst the old elders who might have been able to get a <coughs> consensus across the district? But um, Ubi, Ubi died in 1843. We know Moppy was dead by 1842 at the latest we don't hear what happens to Mundi. He'd been alive and an elder in 1820s, um, was still around in 1841. Then I don't hear anything more. So uh, Mel Robin, I've got the date that he died as well. So these were all really powerful men prior to whites who might have been able to calm some of the dissent amongst the tribal nations, you know, dealing with this amazing onslaught. But there doesn't seem to have been anybody and so... There are significant men, but they can't enforce their authority across a region. They can only enforce their authority within their own community. I do think that the historical evidence, there's a very strong case for Aboriginal sovereignty and that there were opportunities to sign treaties and that it was just impatience and pressure from the nouveau riche, if you want to call them that, that the British government never took the time, never gave, them the resor- gave local governors resources to actually sit down because it's it's a huge task. You would have had to have signed treaties every time you went into new Aboriginal country. Europeans had to learn the language or Aboriginal people had to learn English. My experience is Aboriginal people were quicker at learning English than whites were at learning their language. But it would have been, it would have required putting a break on settlers going into Aboriginal country if you were going to recognise sovereignty and sign treaties and they weren't prepared to do it. And I I mean I don't use the term but but I think it is, a, it is an effective analogy. Yeah. To me, it's a bit like the mining industry today, although they're on the back foot now that commodity prices have collapsed. <laughs> they won't. How do we regulate them? That's what is and other governors, and Burke, Governor Burke, how do we regulate them? You know, they're not called squatters for nothing. They were committing illegal acts, which Governor Darling said, we'll have to legitimise it, we'll give them a squatting licence. But they are the lawbreakers refusing to be bound by the rules that the Colonial Office set. By the time somebody like William Charles Wentworth has amassed his fortune and can afford to live in London and set up an Australian association in 1850 in London to permanently lobby the colonial office, you get a sense of... And and the gold rushes. The politics of the British Parliament changes too because suddenly the British working class want to come out here. So who were they to sort of stand in the way? that all of these pastoral families that I'm so interested in because they come north to Moreton Bay, all of their wealth was built on slavery. And, of course, they come to New South Wales post-slavery where they've got the convict system. So how much of our the white Australian history is actually founded on slavery as well as dispossession of the, the wealth that was accumulated through that process um, and that, yeah, certainly a- attracted those keen to make money and quickly... <laughs> They they could all communicate with one another. They did all speak different languages. They all spoke different rela- l- languages around southern Queensland, but they could all communicate with one another. They, they could communicate. It was really hard for me to work out, you know, what was the regional boundary? Who got invited to these big bunyip gatherings, annual gatherings, and who didn't? It seems to have been people came from easily 500 kilometres away, 500, from northern New South Wales, from Western Queensland, from Central Queensland, if they got the invitation, they love to come. And so these are great... Regions. So their ability to communicate with one another is great. And that's why their meetings take so long. I've got white saying. When they had a big meeting on the outskirts of the township of Brisbane, it was a, an Aboriginal village which is now Victoria Park it's now cut up by a golf course and a freeway it was the main Aboriginal village in this period people would come from far away to have meetings and uh, the police would be waiting because they you know they want to make an arrest and and so the police would report you know the next day oh they argued for hours <laughs> we were waiting for them all to go to sleep so we could pounce so yeah and they would say they were they seemed to be arguing so it wasn't just at the big annual bunya meetings and there were other meetings that they had. There were known meeting places along the coast but they could also call meetings when they needed to and this this particular meeting was held after a really important Aboriginal man was killed by settlers and they seem to have been debating their response to it which is why the police were were there. They thought they could get Dundalee that night but they didn't. I actually don't think it was a problem of communicating. It's about it's about democracy and egalitarian society. It takes a long time to resolve matters. And they didn't want to force their will on others. So they traditionally, they would agree to disagree. But that is a problem then when you've got white society is more centralized. And so there's huge debate, too, amongst the white settler community about how to respond. The missionaries are hated as, by the pastoralists almost as much as Gipps was hated, because they tended to stand up for Aboriginal people. But you've got a centralized authority that was, I suppose, a bit weak because it wasn't enforcing the regulations completely and the law completely. Aboriginal people remember Dundley. There's an important, in fact, an important rehabilitation centre in Brisbane was named after Dundley. Long after Dundley died, I know Aboriginal people were talking about him because William Wellesby was one early historian, amateur historian, he used to talk to the Strabrock Island people. And they did not like Dundley and they told, Wellsby, the story, but Wellsby, you know, Wellsby compares Dundalee with Lawrence of Arabia because he's <laughs> writing in the 20s. You know, he, he records, but the, the Stradbroke Island people said they'd warned him he shouldn't go into Brisbane. So they were still telling his story. His name was known as a warrior. That was why I was invited by an Aboriginal activist, Sam Watson, to speak on Invasion Day. The stories were not detailed, which was why I was set told, you know, by some Aboriginal elders, keep going Libby, we want to hear more. He was mainly remembered as somebody who stood up and fought against the authorities. There was still, the Stradbroke Islanders still don't all agree about how Dundeley should be remembered. There's an incident near Mount Coulomb where one of Dundeley's followers was a man called Mikolo, and his brother Borrow, when he heard that Mikolo had been sentenced to death by the Supreme Court, he launched an attack on some whites near Mount Coulomb to avenge his brother's death sentence. In the end, the British didn't hang Niccolo. And so I've also got the accounts of Aboriginal women really berating Borough. You acted precipitately. You shouldn't have you know, carried out that act. But the reason why this is significant is I spoke to uh, a local from Mount Coulomb who had researched all of that. And he wanted to put up a, a memorial. He had lobbied Sunshine Coast Regional Council. He wanted um, an acknowledgement that an Aboriginal atrocity had been carried out at Coulomb. And so here they were being presented with those people who wanted the frontier of violence to be remembered at Murdering Creek and they were being lobbied by a more conservative gentleman who wanted an atrocity to be remembered and so the Sunshine Council just chickened out <laughs> and haven't put up any memorials. Believe me, the debate about Murdering Creek is still going on and there's plenty of people unhappy about the fact people are trying to tell what really happened there to make people realise the significance of the name. I think it's been amazing that, yeah, that all that, Property development could go on around there without anybody kind of thinking about the name and, yeah, that's what it represented, an atrocity against Aboriginal people.